Let's open the Word of God together today on this holy day as we remember our Lord Jesus' death. John 19 verse 23 says, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross. Take note of that. They were near the cross, not far away watching at a distance. They were nearby. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Verse 23 says, When the soldiers crucified Jesus. Crucifixion, it has to be one of the most barbaric execution methods imaginable. Yet it has become possible for that word to somehow just slip by. I guess because we are just have been so inundated with art and jewellery and that word over the years, we can allow it to just slip by. I guess for those who regularly witness this punishment, I'm sure that word brought a different reaction. I'm sure for them it brought a whole surge of emotions, images, sounds, smells, memories that we could not really even begin to imagine. Four Roman soldiers crucified Jesus. It says, after scourging him, which means they brutally flogged him until much of the skin was ripped from his back and neck and legs. And then they forced him to carry his cross to the place where they would put him to death. They removed his clothes and stretched him out on heavy timbers, driving iron nails through his hands and feet. And lifting him up over many hours, they watched him slowly suffocate. At this time, it was the soldiers' right to divide the prisoners' clothes amongst themselves. Jesus' tunic was quite unique. It was woven together as a single piece, piece rather than being stitched together. It was a, a single piece of woven material, which made it even more valuable, and they decided to cast lots for it. The cruelty and indifference of the Roman soldiers stood in stark contrast to another group, who also stood near the cross. The Gospel of John records that near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And it seems that John, the the author of this Gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved, also stood there with them. The contrast could not have been stronger. One group, indifferent, uncaring, savage in their cruelty. The other, broken, despairing, inconsolable. Jesus' own mother, Mary, stood near the cross. 
And I guess that only a parent can really even begin to understand the intense grief that she experienced that day. Not only was her firstborn son dying an unjust, shameful, agonising death, but the, the central story of her life seemed to be just unravelling before her very eyes. You see, it was this woman, Mary, who, who found herself pregnant by the Holy Spirit all of those years ago. It was this woman who, despite being a virgin, found herself pregnant, despite already being engaged to Joseph, despite being a nobody from an out-of-the-way place, she was chosen to be the mother of the chosen one, the Messiah. I mean, that's what the angel said to her. He will save his people from their sins. They will call him Emmanuel, God with us. She must have thought to herself, how is this? God with us. She must have thought, surely this is God abandoning us. She must have thought to herself, surely my son has failed to save his people from their sins. Surely this has been all for nothing. I mean, didn't the angel say he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High? Didn't he say the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever? His kingdom will never end. Lord, this appears to be an end. God, I just don't understand what you are doing. What's all this talk about being a prince of peace? I have no peace. Mary's own credibility and her honour were on the line as well. All those years ago, was I just imagining things? And how can this be happening? John tells us that Mary's sister was also there beside her. And it seems that this woman was Salome, the mother of James and John. They were first cousins of Jesus. Salome was Jesus' auntie. Now, we know from Matthew's gospel that it was this woman who came to Jesus, her nephew, and asked him, Lord, grant that one of these, these two sons of mine, may sit at your right and the other at your your left in your kingdom. And despite Jesus saying to her that those places were to be decided by his father, I can't help feeling that Salome still secretly dreamed of what all of this might mean for her boys. I mean, after all, it was only a week ago that they'd all entered Jerusalem with such fanfare, such celebration. And for a few days, it must have seemed as though her boys, her simple boys, fishermen from Galilee, were going to be someone. And well, now all of that seemed lost. Salome must have felt for her sister Mary too. I mean, she was part of this right from the very beginning. You know what sisters are like, don't you? Salome must have been amongst the first to hear that her unmarried sister Mary was pregnant. I mean, there must have been whispered conversations in the dead of night, under the sheet. You know what sisters are like? You're what? You're what? You're pregnant. 
How can you be pregnant? Are you serious? I mean, Salome's feelings of loss, just like her sister's, must have been just enormous as she stood near the cross. There were two other women there that day who stood near the cross. Mary, the wife of Clopas, who we really know nothing about, and Mary Magdalene. Now, the Gospel of Luke tells us that that when Jesus first met Mary Magdalene, she was heavily demonised. Now, for any number of possible reasons that we can't possibly know, Mary's sinfulness had given authority for seven demons to somehow find residence within her. And these demons had empowered her to do terrible things. I mean, clearly Satan was at work in her life to destroy both her life and undoubtedly many other lives as well. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, Mary Magdalene appeared to be in a hopeless situation. But then she met Jesus and everything changed. You see, Jesus had the power and the authority to to cast out these demons from Mary. She was in bondage, but the Lord Jesus had set her free from that bondage. Her eyes were open. She turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, and she received forgiveness for her sins. And she would never be the same again. Following Jesus was everything for Mary. He had completely turned her life around. He was the miracle worker who had somehow worked a miracle within her. She was new from the inside out. But now this. He saved so many others. Why could he not save himself? And then there was John. John was there too. The only man, it seems, who had the courage to stay with him to the bitter end. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, what did all this mean for him? John was losing not only his best friend, Jesus was his Lord, his master. But John had left everything to follow Jesus. He literally just walked away from his father's fishing business to follow Jesus. I can imagine John would have been thinking, What about being fishers of men? I mean, he didn't mention anything about crucifixion. Uh, I mean, this is not going according to plan. John must have been thinking, surely you can do something. I have seen you raise people from the dead. Surely John must have been thinking, I was on the boat in the storm when we all thought we were going to drown and you stood up and just said, be still. And it was still. Why won't you act? Why won't you save yourself? And why are you asking me to care for your mother? I mean, that sounds like you really have given up. For John and the others, it must have seemed so confusing, so hopeless, so utterly meaningless. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you honestly could not see any way out, any way forward? 
Every path seemed to lead to more desperation, more anxiety, more hopelessness. I know I've been there at times and it's a terrible place to be. Have you ever felt as though your dreams, all that you'd hoped for, was just evaporating before your eyes? Everything seemed like it was going to be okay and then suddenly, within a matter of hours, disaster. thing is, for that small group of women, for John, and even for the Roman soldiers who were putting him to death, for those who stood near the cross that day, the very thing that would ultimately bring them peace and hope and meaning appeared to be the very opposite of those things. You know, 600 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words about Jesus. Isaiah said, this is Isaiah 53, he said, He had no majesty or beauty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. And surely he took on himself, he carried our sickness and our sorrow. Yet we, humanity, mistakenly thought God was punishing him. Isaiah foretold it all. We would get it wrong. We would completely misread the situation. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. He makes it clear it wasn't for his sins that he was pierced, but for ours. It wasn't for his iniquities that he was crushed. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. For those who stood there that day, I mean, there appeared to be little peace or healing. Yet that is exactly what was being won on their behalf. And even today, ultimately, each of us needs to find peace with God. And there is only one way to find peace with God. You find peace with God through trusting in Jesus and all that he did on that terrible day by taking your place on the cross. Now you might quite rightly, quite understandably be thinking, how can that event, how can that event all those years ago have anything to do with me living in 2014? And what on earth do you mean by taking my place on the cross? Why would I need to be on a cross? Well, 
the very next verse of Isaiah's words give us the answer to that question. Verse 6 says, We all, just like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every one of us have chosen to follow our own path. That, that is the very definition of sin. To miss what God has for you. But God laid on Jesus the sins of us all. What seemed like failure and disaster for that small group, for the four women and John, was actually victory through the power of God. That's why the Apostle Paul, as he reflected and as the Holy Spirit revealed what was happening here. You see, Paul was this learned Old Testament scholar. He knew the Old Testament. And he probably watched Jesus be crucified. We know he was there in the weeks following. But the Apostle Paul through the leading of the Holy Spirit, wrote these amazing words. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we, the church, might become the righteousness of God. Wow. We, the church, have become the righteousness of God. If you can get your head around that, you're doing a lot better than me. That is hard to understand. So yes, we were there. Our sin, all of us, was placed on Jesus. I mean, he felt the weight of my sin. He took the punishment that I deserve. He paid the price for me and he paid the price for you too. There were many there that day who were followers of Jesus. Many who had come from Galilee and the surrounding regions. Many who'd followed him for years. But on that day, nearly all of them abandoned him. They hid in the shadows, watching from behind closed doors, afraid and unsure. And even Peter, who was you know, his closest, kind of one of the closest friends, really, the lead disciple, even Peter, three times the night before, said, no, I don't know him. No, never met the man. Don't know him. Only a, a very small handful stayed near the cross and near Jesus. Today, some 2,000 years later, I want to suggest to you that we need to stay near the cross. We need to stay near the cross. The cross is a place of place of pain and suffering it is not necessarily a nice place to be it is a place of shame and disgrace yet the cross is where it all begins 
You see, we have no life in Christ if we are not united with him in his death. You cannot have new life in Christ without being united with him in his death. The Apostle Paul said, Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We need to stay near the cross Every single day, for that is the only place you will truly find life. You see, in the very next verse, Paul says, If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. You see, it is only as we come near the cross, it is only as we lay our life at the foot of the cross, And as we confess over and over and over again, my old life, my flesh life is fit to be dead and buried. That we will then be united with Christ in his resurrection. In saying that, don't get me wrong, you are saved once and that's it. But because we struggle with sin in the flesh, we need to come back to the cross regularly. This is why baptism is such a wonderful symbol of what has taken place already in the life of the believer. Baptism quite shockingly acts out the death and burial of the old life. You know, I've had the privilege of baptising many people over the years we've been here at Lakes. And I always emphasise this point that as we come up out of the water, you come up to new life in Christ. The old life of the flesh has been put to death and we rise to new life in the spirit. Jesus himself said these words. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Jesus says, come follow me. But if you will do that, if you will come and follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You know, many times I've heard people quote Jesus' words here as though in saying that he somehow was referring to the, the, the difficulties which naturally come out of life. You know, Jesus said, you will have troubles in this life. Like, for instance, a strained relationship, a boring job, an illness, a long daily commute, or or acne. I mean, with self-pitying pride, we say, well, it's my cross, and I just have to bear it. That is not what Jesus meant. When someone spoke of a cross or of being crucified in the first century, it meant only one thing, death. When Jesus spoke about taking up your cross and following him, he was speaking about doing as he himself did. 
He carried the means of his own death to the place where they would put him to death. And all along the way, he was ridiculed and mocked. The call to follow Jesus is the call to deny oneself. And I know this is not palatable, but it is a call to do as Jesus did in laying down his life in obedience to the Father's will. It is a call to set aside your agenda for his agenda. I mean, literally putting to death the self-centred life in exchange for a Christ-centred life. The call to follow Jesus may well mean the loss of friends. It may mean the loss of family, the loss of your reputation, the loss of career, and possibly even your life. This is what Jesus calls you to. He bids us to come and die. And paradoxically, it is only in dying with Christ that we find eternal life in him. The Apostle John records these words of Jesus. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go thirsty and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus bids us to come and die to sin and to the world and to self that we may live in him. This Good Friday, Easter 2014, I want to call us back to this astonishing truth, this truth which seems to be all upside down and back to front. The only way to find real life is to die to self. Yet time and time again in the Gospels, Time and time again, we find Jesus saying these words, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We're going to gather around the Lord's table now. And as we, as we do that, as we go through this, this rhythmic ritual, which we do often, it's good to do it often. As we, as we do that, my prayer is that each of us would seriously reflect on the call of Christ. Come and die to yourself that you may live in me. Could those who are serving come and begin distributing the elements The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take the bread in your own time. Remember the Lord Jesus' body broken for you. We'll keep the cup and we'll share it together in a moment as a, as a symbol of our unity. Spend some time thanking the Lord Jesus for his body. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body broken for us. Your body laid down willingly on those terrible timbers for us. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We do this to remember. We do this regularly so that we will be continually called back to the very core of who we are and what we are about. As a gathering of people who meet regularly around this table, we are not a club or an association We are the body of Christ, the family of God. And this is our family table. So this morning, remember the Lord Jesus. We do this to rejoice. If you are in Christ, your sins have been washed away. No spot or blemish remains, and praise God, you are no longer condemned. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And as a result, we together, the church, have become the righteousness of God. So this morning, rejoice that you are washed clean. We do this to repent and to be reconciled. So whilst we're washed clean, we all know that we just continue to sin. And it's almost as though the the closer you walk with Jesus, the more aware you are of your sin. And this is why I say that we need to come back to the foot of the cross daily because Each and every day we need to put to death the desires of the flesh so that we might live by the Spirit. So as you come this morning to celebrate around the Lord's table, come with repentant hearts. Come once again to repent.
and to know that you are reconciled with the Father. Come this morning, bring your sin and lay it again at the foot of the cross. And finally, we do this to proclaim the gospel. Gospel simply means good news. If you're sitting here this morning a little confused about Christianity, about what this is all about, this is the central truth of Christianity, represented by the bread and juice this morning. Jesus Christ gave his body and his blood in your place so that God no longer sees your sins, but the righteousness, the sinlessness of Jesus. So this morning, hear the good news about Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your blood. Your blood given so willingly. Your blood which does for us something which nothing else can do. Your blood which completely cleanses us, washes us free of every blemish. Your blood which binds us together as your people, as your body. Lord, we rejoice that we are in you. And this special holy day, we drink this cup together and we bless you as we do that. Let's share the cup. Amen. If you pass your cups along to the end of the row, they'll be collected. We're going to finish our service with a lovely song. Thanks, Louise.